Romans chapter 14 is an exceptional passage of Scripture. The Apostle Paul is communicating doctrine about, in effect, life and ministry balance. Romans chapter 16 is his concluding chapter for this letter to the believers which are at Rome. And he names so many people, singling them out and encouraging others to help them, to salute them, to say hello to them. It's his way, in effect, of saying thank you for assisting in ministry. And sandwiched in between is Romans chapter 15, and it may seem to our minds that there's just not a lot in here. I don't know that anybody has ever been encouraged to memorize a verse from Romans chapter 15. But what I see in this passage of Scripture is the Apostle Paul communicating his wholehearted pursuit for ministry. What we sense within him is a pursuit of holiness and passion for the cause of Christ. And he's going to encourage us in the same way. And I want to begin by reading just the first three verses of this chapter this morning. And I hope that it'll be a help to you. I'll begin in verse 1. If you don't have your Bible, those verses are available here on the screen. We then that are strong, ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but, as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. If any word best described the ministry and the life of the Apostle Paul, I think it could be the simple word wholehearted. He was wholehearted. Every facet of his being in the pursuit of the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ being communicated to the world. He was all about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ being communicated not only to the lost world but among believers. He was always challenging believers like you and I, the recipients of his letters to reach their potential as an instrument in the cause of Jesus Christ. Never was it okay in his mind to stay where we are, but he was always compelling. He was always exhorting us to go on to the next level. And here in Romans chapter 15, this does not take deep study to be aware, he is writing to believers that are living in Rome. One historian called Rome the cesspool of iniquity. Now, that's just a really smart way of saying it was a bad place to live. Cesspool does not sound like a good thing. Iniquity, we know, is a bad thing. He's telling us that these believers are navigating life in a challenging time. In fact, politically speaking, the highest figure, the leader in Rome, was a known pedophile. Believe it or not, abortion was rampant within the culture and the city of Rome. The religion of Paul's day, what these individual Christians were up against, was the worship of pagan deities who were, within their mythology, as petty as the human beings that were worshiping them. What I'm trying to communicate to you is this. Sometime we look at the scripture and we think of it as a gilded age of ministry. We kind of haze it over, gloss it over, as though it was just easier to be effective in ministry then, much more than now, because after all, now we are surrounded by wickedness. We live in a world of darkness, as did they. 
And what the apostle is going to try to exhort them to do is to encourage them to be aware. The only way to succeed is to be wholehearted. The only way to succeed is to go all out. You ever thought about what you would do if you only had 24 hours to live? How many of you think you might know, if you only had one meal left, what you would want to eat? That happened in the first service, only like two people. Why do you not think about your death more often? I said to the first service, and I'll say it to you now, what most of us aren't aware of is our last meal is more than likely going to come through an IV tube. Isn't that encouraging? That's how most of us will eat our last meal. I'm here to help you on July 4th be encouraged. If you only had 24 hours of life left and you were aware of it, you would boil everything down to that which mattered the most to you. You would prioritize around what you deemed to be the most important facet of your existence. And I can stand before you this morning and say that there was a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew the exact moment of his death. He was aware from the beginning of time that the day would come where his death on the cross would be present. And he even announced, now my hour is come. As we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we see what he prioritized and we ask, what did Jesus do with 24 hours to live? He was in the upper room and he spent the majority of his time with the disciples, with those who would take over Gospel Incorporated, would pursue the cause of Jesus Christ with their lives. And he exhorted them, and he taught them doctrine, and he comforted them, and he encouraged them, and he served them. We know that he got up and he washed their feet. We know that the Lord Jesus served and encouraged others. We also know that the Lord Jesus Christ spent time in prayer with his Heavenly Father. That's what he prioritized in his last 24 hours. Now, if we back this up just a little bit into the book of John in chapter 17, we'll notice something that mattered greatly to the Lord Jesus Christ. It dominated his prayer. John chapter 17, students of the Bible might call it the high priestly prayer. I don't know that that's necessarily what it was termed then, but I do know we can listen in as Jesus prays. And I want you to listen to John 17 and verse 11. Jesus is praying, and this is what he prays. And now... I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. He's going to come back, and he prays this in verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That's us that Jesus Christ is praying for, that they may all be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. This is a remarkable prayer. You might not be a Greek theologian. You may not have all of the languages of the Scripture down, but even a cursory reading of those verses, you could settle on the key word, and the key word is one. He desires, he prayed for, unity mattered greatly to the Lord Jesus Christ. He exhorted his disciples in that way. He encouraged them to that end, and he explicitly prays for us in that way. 
He prays in verse 23 of John 17, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. What Jesus is praying is is simply this. The quality of our wholehearted pursuit of unity is what attracts or repels the world in which we are living and serving. Now, when I use a word like unity in a church setting, oftentimes our minds think of uniformity. We think we should all look the same and we should all act the same and that all of our efforts should be exhausted to bring uniformity, to bring singleness out of multiplicity in the sake of everybody look the same, do the same, think the same, talk the same. That's not what Jesus is pursuing. What Jesus Christ is praying for is that we would all together be like Christ and in our Christ-likeness we would be wholehearted in our unity for the cause that we are living life here for now. Think for just a minute about the Lord Jesus Christ and be aware that unity mattered greatly to Him. In the 133rd Psalm, we get insight into God the Father and here is what we hear, behold, How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And now it's gonna, it's gonna speak a metaphor and it's a little different metaphor, but stick with it. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments, as the dew of Mount Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. You say, are you going to talk about oiled up beards? No. What we're saying is God cared so much about unity and oneness, that it is in effect a fragrant smell to him. It's a sweet and a beautiful thing to him. It is fact that unity mattered to the Lord Jesus Christ enough that he prayed about it. Unity matters enough to God the Father that it is a fragrant smell to him. The prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, prophesying about the new covenant, prophesying about the day and age in which we live in, the age of grace, the age of the church. He is prophesying and he says this in Jeremiah 32, 38, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. I will give them one heart and one way. I will give them one internal attitude and I will give them one external action. A wholehearted pursuit of unity in our Christ-likeness breeds a wholehearted pursuit of the cause of Jesus Christ. And the quality of our unity, the quality of our oneness, either attracts or repels the world in which we live. And we are no different than the Roman believers. They lived in a world defined as a cesspool of iniquity, and so do we. It encourages us to realize there is hope that we can make a difference. It is the integer that must be put in place in order to make the difference that we often miss. It is Christ-likeness. As I study down through this passage I realize that discord, as one author wrote, strikes a deadly blow at the work of God in the church. Chaos and confusion and strife and envy, jealousy, anger, bitterness, dissension, fighting, hatred, indifference to the needs of others, selfishness, 
a lack of sacrificial love. All of these things cripple the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ in this world. And so I'm saying yet again, because I want our minds to grasp this principle, I'm not saying we all have to do the same thing and eat the same food and educate our kids the same way and wear our hair the same and and all those external things. I'm saying we all have to be like Jesus Christ. So how was Jesus Christ? What did Jesus Christ do that I can emulate? Those are the things that we read in verses 1, 2, and 3. And I note this first. Not seeking to please ourselves. In verse 1, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. We do not seek to please ourselves. Now, if you are given to judgmentalism, if you are given to exclusivism, that's a tough pill to swallow. We are not to please ourselves. I am grumpy when I'm tired. And grumpy is a nice way of saying I'm nasty and foul-spirited when I'm tired. I was at teen camp this week. I did not sleep in my own bed. Do you feel sorry for me? I get tired when my routine is messed up. And when I get tired, you know what I focus on? Making myself happy even in the smallest things. I want everything to go my way, and I want everybody to get out of my way. That's one of the things that goes my way. I navigate life trying to please myself. And most of us, whether we would admit that or not, I'm not talking about a personality set. I'm not talking about a state of fatigue. Most of us navigate life seeking to please ourselves. And the Apostle Paul says, if you are ever going to be wholehearted in your oneness, if you are ever going to be wholehearted in your pursuit of the cause of Jesus Christ, it will mandate that you do not seek to please yourself. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the believers in Colossae. He says in Colossians 3.12, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. That's how we're supposed to treat each other. In each of Paul's letters, he was communicating to believers, you have to be humble. You cannot navigate life seeking to please yourself. Now, verse 1 of chapter 15 is directly connected to what he's communicating in chapter 14. He's trying to teach us how to minister to each other and how to make decisions and how to exercise liberty in the Holy Spirit in chapter 14. And so he gives us two thumbnail rules here to apply if we are going to seek to please others. The first is simply that. Choose to please your neighbor rather than yourself. Do not insist on your way of doing things. That's easy. Don't insist on doing things your way. Be quick to give in. After all, this is what love does. We've been in a study of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love seeks those others. Do not insist on your own way. And most people navigate life insisting on their own way. Not only insist on your own way, but he's teaching us, be careful when you are using your liberty around others to not allow their lack of freedom to enable them and still in them sin. He is teaching us not to please ourselves. In Galatians 6 and verse 2, he writes, Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
In verse 1, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Ought is a strong word. It's a word of burden. We should bear the infirmities of others. Have you ever in, during or post-COVID been put off by somebody's cough? Did you ever notice people coughing before COVID? Anyone? I did. And now during COVID and post-COVID, are you more keenly aware of people who cough I like to talk about this in a crowd during church because I know somebody right now is thinking, I, I, I have to cough. I didn't have to cough, but now I do have to cough. Please, God, answer this prayer. I don't want to cough right now. Bearing the infirmities of the weak. Don't seek to please yourself. Now, I just want you to think about it in this way. I'm not picking on people that cough. I'm talking about our sensitivities to the infirmities of others. If you were sitting directly in front of someone and they coughed and they expelled germs and they expelled a push of wind and you felt it in your hair and you felt it across your neck, you would think to yourself, oh, that's horrible. And you would feel like you needed to get away from the person who just covered you with their cough. You would be sensitive to the fact that they are infirm. Now, it could be that they just ate popcorn and had a kernel stuck in their throat. It could be their allergies. It could be a 100,000 things. I'm just speaking of our sensitivities to the infirm. What we do not think is what I need to do is turn to this person and engage them in conversation, not in a correcting way, but in a loving way. And I should seek to help them with their cough in a loving, compassionate, and gracious way. Our thought is get away from them. Here is what the Apostle Paul is communicating. The quality of our oneness will either attract or repel the world in which we live. Not oneness in external things, oneness in Christ-likeness. And one of the ways that we seek not to please ourselves is when we bear up the infirmities of others. I don't mean put up with the infirmities of others. But literally stop what we are doing and help them to solve what infirms them. And that's not how we live. We have a growing church. We have an eclectic body of believers. The longer that I pastor, the more that I realize our church is incredibly eclectic. I would say it is a unicorn. You say, a unicorn? I've never heard a church compared to a mythical figure. It is a unicorn in that it is extremely hard to find. But unicorns are so hard to find, you can't find one. Okay, we found one. We are singular. We are unique. And what can happen in a church over time is we can become so assured of what we want and so content with how we want things that we actually, without realizing it or not, navigate ministerial life only pleasing ourselves. And we are not aware that there are others that are around us that may not be at the level, spiritually speaking, or discernment level of Scripture that we are. And Paul says, I'm not saying merely put up with their presence. I am saying you ought to bear up. You ought to shoulder the load. You ought to get to completion in Christ together. There is nothing more damning than a church that is growing where fissures... And factions and cliques arrive. 
When you cease to be wholehearted in your oneness, that quality which lacks certainly does not attract a lost world. And it requires effort because the older that we get, the more established in our ways we become, the more specific we are about what we like, what makes us happy. You realize that that's how you navigate life. You like a certain temperature when you sleep. You like a certain thing for breakfast. You like your coffee a certain way, or you don't like coffee at all. You like a certain place to sit when you come into an auditorium. You like a certain length of a sermon, and I agree with you on that. It should be shorter. You like comfort. You like things the way you like things. But I'm saying to you, when we come together as the body of Christ, you cannot insist on your own way. We do not seek to please ourselves. He takes it a step further, and this is super deep. But in verse 2, he says, Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. How can I be wholehearted in my pursuit of the cause of Jesus Christ? Don't seek to please yourself. That's rule number one. Rule number two is seek to please your neighbor. You might just circle the times that please is used in here. It's three times in those three verses to make somebody else happy. Even Jesus Christ did not please himself, but pleased others. Paul was writing to the believers at Philippi, speaking of Jesus. He said, he, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Do you think Jesus Christ pleased himself when he came into this world? Born to a poor couple that could barely eke out an existence? In some ways, it is as though the triune Godhead held a meeting and made sure everything that they did was unpleasant. Everything that was established was not pleasing to Christ, but for the sake of others. Jesus Christ was born without the assistance of a physician. Jesus Christ was born to an unwed mother. Jesus Christ had an adoptive earthly father who was merely a carpenter. Jesus Christ had his own brothers despise and disbelieve that he was Christ. His his only peek behind the curtain that he was deity was the angelic choir which delivers the news to a group of shepherds who were unclean in their generation, the lowest ranking people. Think for just a minute about this simple fact. If you'd like to impersonate the Lord Jesus Christ, impersonate the quality of being supportive of others. Impersonate the quality of selflessness. None of this comes naturally. All of our complaining, all of our murmuring would cease if we did not seek to please ourselves, but rather sought to please other people. Facts. Because the things that we complain about are the things that put us out. Not only should we not seek to please ourselves, not only should we seek to intentionally please others, I note this in verse 3, for even Christ pleased not himself, as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. We should seek to be a servant. The Apostle Paul is going to quote from the 69th Psalm. In fact, it's a direct quotation from Psalm 69.9 where we read, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. Jesus Christ 
is living a life of reproach. The 69th Psalm is a messianic psalm. That's just a psalm about the coming Messiah. And it tells us much about our expectations for the life of Jesus Christ. And in the 69th Psalm, we read this. He will be hated without cause by his enemies. We read further that he'll be rejected by his brothers. We read further that he will experience the deepest agony any soul could endure and do so with much crying. A depiction of the Garden of Gethsemane. We know he will be made fun of by people like Herod. We know that he will be criticized by the leaders. He will be subject to to mockery in this cruel and ungodly world. The hatred of Jesus Christ is literally a fulfilling of prophecy. And as we studied last week, the willingness of Jesus Christ to endure the cross, to be despised, to be maligned, to be unfairly treated, to be unjustly tried, because he concerned himself merely with fulfilling the will of his Father, indicates his servanthood. And if we are truly going to be unified and wholehearted in our cause of Christ pursued so that we attract a lost and dying world, it will require that we do not seek to please ourselves. That means, factually, nobody should ever complain. Ever. It's too hot in here. Has that ever been said? No, except if you're up here and you're wearing 53 layers because you're right with God. Not seeking to please yourself. I don't like it that way. I don't want it that way. I want it another way. I don't want to park here. I don't want to sit here. I don't want them near me. Why are so many people who are different than me coming here now? Why are so many new people here? Why can't we just all sit around the old people? Why can't we just build a club? And everybody that was here 15 years ago, they're at the top level. And everybody that was here 10 years ago, they're sub-level, but they're still together. And then everybody that was here five years ago, and if you've come in the last five months, you're not even on the team yet. You have to be here 12 months. Then we'll decide whether or not you're on the team. And what the Lord says is, Yuck. It's in the Greek. What he says is, that's not Christ-like behavior. That's not wholehearted unity. The quality of your oneness and the quality of your pursuit of the cause of Christ is actually repelling a lost world. There should be no fissure. There should be no faction. I, as a pastor, do not belong any more to somebody who's been here 15 years than somebody who's been here 15 minutes. And what we struggle with so mightily is we seek to please ourselves. Everything has to be our way. There are two words that need to die in this church. Old Graceway. Uh, That's Old Graceway. (sighs) That felt like Old Graceway. That, that moment right there, that was Old Graceway. I don't want to live in the past. Now people are real quiet because they're thinking, oh no, I, I think that's nostalgic. When I say that, I don't mean anything ugly. I just mean that was when things were really good. <laughs> that's all I mean. I mean when things were really much more closely aligned with my way. That's what old, you know, I'm just saying like it used to be more like, I like it. Old grace way. You know what I'm saying, pastor? Yes, exactly what Paul's shouting down in Romans 15. Do not seek to please yourself, but... When we build the next building, you know what people are going to say? We'll come over into this room because we'll have some service in this room and they'll go, this, this feels like old Graceway. This feels like old Graceway. This is it. This is is when we were at our best. And then we'll build the third building and they'll walk into the gym and they'll think to themselves, do you remember when this was old Graceway? This was so great. We gathered in here and people sang and Really, I think what we're all saying is, and I was five years younger and better looking and had more energy. 
Old Graceway needs to die. Let it go. I'm not saying things are changing and things are evolving. I'm just saying stop living in the past. Stop being so concerned about what pleases you and try to please your neighbor and seek to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who cares what I want? Now, the reality is I have a little bit of a luxury because I'm the pastor of the church. A few people care what I want. It's less than ever, but a few people care what I want. Who cares what you want? Well, I didn't want it to be this way. We, we've had two services now. I didn't want it to be at 9.45. 9.30 suits me better. And some of you are going, actually, that's a great point. I, I don't know if you've thought about that. We have, and we're doing connection groups starting in two weeks. I don't really, you know, the connection group thing, I'm glad. Um, if there was a way for mine to not be at 9.45, but rather at 10.30, that would work better for me. Okay, it might not be accidental that we're preaching Romans 15, before the launching of connection groups. Now, now, take this in the right pastoral sense, from a heart of compassion and a heart of love. Who cares what you want? Who cares what I want? Now, now, now I'm not saying we build schedules and you just have to suck it up and put up with it because then we'd like do church at like four in the morning and nobody would come. I understand that. I'm not saying you have to suck it up all the time. I'm just saying we're so controlled by what we want. And in the South, like this, we have so much church culture and history. We're so dominated by the way we want it to be. And the fact is, we can probably find a place that will do it that way. We always forget that God's will is what matters the most. And if God wants you here, then be here. And don't seek to please yourself, but rather seek to please others. And above all, seek to be a servant. I beseech you, Paul wrote in Romans 12, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Which means I will share his grief. I will respond to my sorrows like him. I will bear the slander and misunderstanding of others. I will embrace my cross. This was incredibly shocking to first century ears because Paul is saying the Messiah was a servant. Can I remind you of something? One of the things that we all hope to do is I want to be used by God. Can I ask you a generic question? How many of you want to be used by God? Yeah, all of us, right? I want to be used by God. Stop for a second and think of it in this terms. When you finish an assignment and you walk out and you say something like, I cannot believe I was just so used. I cannot believe they just used me. Well, that's what it is, right? I've been used by God. If you really want to know if you have a servant's heart, let somebody treat you like a servant and see if you have a servant's heart. That is a bond servant. That is the, that is the word slave. You really want to know if you're servant-hearted? Let somebody treat you like a slave and see. Let somebody have the audacity to look at you and say, hey, can you not sit there? Can you please go to overflow? Mm, ooh. That's where the servants sit. Excuse me? Do you know who I am? Did you not see me drop my tithe check in the black metal box out front? Do you not know that I've been here for a long time and this is my chair? Ask me to sit in overflow. Who do you think you are? Well, they think you are a servant. 
And you will only know whether or not you have a servant's heart when somebody treats you like a servant. Why would you not applaud me? I need accolades. You should know my name. You should know who I am. Do you have a servant's heart? When people treat you like a servant, all of a sudden you'll know. And I have seen those sneers and I've heard those, what? What? Me? Me? Do you know who I am? I, of all people, should not be asked to surrender anything because of who I am. And it is that which destroys the effectiveness of the church in a lost and dying world. It's amazing, isn't it? The things that bother people. I'm throwing myself in this camp. There is stuff that just bothers me. Stuff bothers me. I don't like this auditorium set up like this. Can I be honest with you? But you all do. For whatever reason, you guys like aisles and rows and more. I don't like it. It bothers my eye because it looks cluttered and messy. But we tried it the other way, and there was enough feedback. Oh, we don't like this setup. And I, because I am so incredibly Christ-like and servant-hearted, said, do it the other way. This is my cross to bear. Listen, so many trivial things bother us. Do you know how many people were bothered when I grew a beard and told me, I hate your beard? Okay, thanks, I, I suppose. Why? It's just not what I like. Okay, well, to be honest with you, I'm keeping it now. <laughs> I still have just enough rebel in me to be like, okay, good, good. Did you want me done at 1157? Because I'm going to 1159 now. When we had 1159, I'll push her another two minutes. I just have that in me, and you have that in you. We just like what we like. We want what we like. And if anybody has the audacity to ever treat us like a servant, who do they think they are? You are a servant who should not ever seek to please yourself, but always seek to please your neighbors. And you don't really even know where you are on that spectrum until somebody treats you like a servant, until somebody uses you, and you get in the car and think, I am so used at that place. Well, isn't that what you prayed for? Jesus Christ washed the feet of the disciples in the upper room. And I think to myself, he could have stood up at the end of that dinner and said, Peter, I rescued you from drowning. Wash my feet. What am I, your servant? Peter, I healed your mother-in-law in your house. Now, to be honest, that may not have been a great favor to Peter. We don't know. James and John, you guys are so petulant. You're arguing about who gets to sit at the right hand in the kingdom. Why don't you wash my feet? I have fed you. I have clothed you. I have taught you. I took you off that shipping vessel. You are walking with the Son of God. Why don't you wash my feet? Matthew, I rescued you from the table of customs. You were a hated, despised publican, and I rescued you. Why don't you wash my feet? Judas, you betrayer, why don't you wash my feet? All of you guys use me. I've got to be the one that goes to the cross. I've got to be the one that gets spit on. I have to be the one that's beaten and scourged. I've got to be the one that's nailed to the cross. It's got to be my blood that's shed for the remission of sins. Think about how silly that sounds coming out of my mouth. He willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice. And then juxtapose that against what bothers us. And you will almost throw up in your mouth. Because it's that egregious, our behavior. The wholehearted pursuit of the cause of Christ and our wholehearted unity is, is vitally important. Not unity in the sense of uniformity, unity in the sense of Christ-likeness. The quality of that attracts 
the world in which we live. How do I get there? Simply seek to not please yourself, seek to please others, and seek to be a servant. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.